Zach is Overtime's 26-year-old president. Dan is the CEO and exactly twice his age. These guys didn't even know each other until a mutual friend made the connection. The rest is Overtime history. So Zach, you're a single guy. When you meet people, when they ask you, what do you do for a living? What do you say? It's funny you say that because um, I feel very lucky to be in the position that I'm in, uh, running a company that like I could have dreamed up. Um, so I sometimes have trouble like describing it because I don't want to come off as cocky or um, too confident. Um, so I, I would say I generally downplay it in social situations. You're in uh, a bar. Yeah. <laughs> My name is Zach. What, what, and they say, oh, wow, what, what do you do for a living? What do you say? Yeah, I won't generally say that I have my own company or anything. And then, and then if people press and they ask more, I'd rather them like figure it out through asking questions than being really... I mean, it, it depends, but I'm more comfortable like that. So what's your elevator? What, what do you say? This is For what, me or for overtime? For, for overtime. overtime, yeah. Uh, we're building a sports network for the next generation. Kids are not consuming sports in the same way that they used to, and I'm of that generation. I don't consume sports the same way that my parents did, uh, and there needs to be a substitute, and that's what we're building. Uh, now, Dan, you're married, got two I kids. I do. You know, you're not in social situations like Zach here, right? No, I'm, you don't have to impress anybody. No, you've got nothing to prove. But what's your elevator? What do you tell people when they say, "What do you do for a living?" Everyone's got something to prove. <laughs> you've proven it a couple times. Maybe a few uh, times over. What do I say? If it's somebody who I think knows anything about sports or cares, I tell them the truth, which is we're building the biggest sports network in the world. If it's somebody who has no clue, I tell them I run a global media empire. <laughs> <laughs> That's also true. It's not far from true. Yeah. But but then they'd say, they probably say, well, isn't that ESPN? Uh, and what do you say to that? I would say a lot of things. One is... Because we're not focused on rights, we, we are truly global. Whereas if you want to watch the NBA, it's on 100 channels in 100 countries around the world. And so we're, we're really able, we're going for like every young person. I'd say number two is like, we don't focus on live games. So to, to, to step back, I was the head of digital at William Morris Endeavor when they bought IMG, which right. is a big sports rights media thing. And so I had was lucky to basically service and work with a lot of sports leagues and different media companies. And so I think I saw and then and then Zach was there, too, as early as 2013, them saying, like, you know, the audience dynamics have really changed. Like mm -hmm. you're not refilling the funnel with young people. And I think that's probably the first generation where if you were a kid, then you might have got an, an iPhone or a smartphone in fifth grade or sixth grade. Mm -hmm. And and your just consumption patterns, it's not like they changed. It's not like you gave up TV. It's like you never knew TV. You know, I want to get into all that in a second. But but yeah. just sort of like the top line here, yeah. you guys have like a million two followers on, on one Instagram. Instagram. We have six million across all of our different Across channels. all platforms. Yeah. yeah. Six million. Yeah. And you've been at it since 16. So this is year two and a half, three, right? Yeah, we're a little more than two years. Yeah, December of 2016. So yeah, just over two years. Yeah. So how many views overall? A year ago was a billion. Where is it now? A year ago, it was a billion. Lifetime. Lifetime now, it's half a billion a month. A month? Yeah. So it'll be about six to seven billion this year. Forgive me for asking. You making money? Yeah. Uh -huh. How long did it take to make money? It took... 
I think it took a threshold where we didn't try earlier on to work directly with brands because we didn't want to go in when we didn't think we were big enough. And I think it got to the point where people at brands and agencies were also consumers of our content because we got big enough. And then we would walk in and they'd, we'd say, oh, this is who we are. And somebody would say, oh, yeah, I love your channel. I love what you guys are doing. Uh, and so I think a... it's like the, it's, the, it's the timing. And also, is that where we wanted to put all our resources into building a sales team before we had figured out what content worked? And everything but half like a that. billion a month. Yeah. Holy cow. Was this what you dreamed, hoped for, imagined, pictured, expected a couple of years ago? Honest answer here. Zach? Um. I would say we had big ambitions and I think like high level, we knew what we wanted to do, but I would say there've been more sort of zigs and zags than I would have expected. Uh, and I think that's a positive thing. Like we, we've learned a lot. Um, but I think that that's a result of being entrepreneurs. Like you have to react to what the audience and your customers actually want. I mean, I think anyone who thinks they know from day one exactly what that company's going to look like two years from now, I think that's sort of crazy. But what was your vague, let's say, sense? What was your imagination? A couple years from now, we should be where? My, my, my sense was that we should have um, a brand and content that kids feel really passionate about. Like I should be able to walk down the street in an overtime shirt and some kid goes, oh, shout out to Overtime. Or we have a, a series or whatever it may be, um, and kids are waiting for the next episode. Like that, that was core to what we needed to build, and that we've done, and that we sort of foresaw. But how we've gotten there and the steps along the way, those I couldn't have predicted. Right, sure. so that actually goes to your first thing. So you're on the elevator, and you tell people what you do. Two years ago, they'd say, oh, that sounds great. You quit uh a nice job to do that. Good luck. <laughs> and so what you dream is that you're on the elevator and people go, yeah. Or you dream that you go to your, at my age, your friend's house and they say to their kid, have you ever heard of this thing? And they're like, that, that's, I, I watch your stuff all the time. You're the guy. And then you just, you just cross over that like chasm uh, of recognition. And so I think for that, like that was the dream what made up the content or whatever, I think you always knew that was going to change because you're on board a moving train. Like two or three years ago, nobody would have been like, you should be showing esports, And then that comes out and you're just positioned and it's it's constantly changing. So I think that part, I, I think we always knew would be more fluid, but it's like, could we build something that people really loved? But here you are, you wear that t-shirt. People are saying what now? They're saying shout out to Overtime. They said they love the brand. Um, and I think that's something that makes us unique compared to an ESPN or any of these legacy media companies. There's a real passion behind our brand and our engagement metrics. Everything shows that. But I think that's very different. I think as a new age media company, that's a critical component. When a user gets Overtime or goes to Overtime, yeah. what is the expectation right now? What, what am I going to see? Well, I, I, so I would I would step back to say that we publish on every platform, right. Snapchat, Twitter, Twitch, Instagram, uh, YouTube, because we want to be everywhere that audience is. And that audience is really different. Like on Snapchat, it's it, it's a much higher percent female audience than it is on Instagram. Just who who follows us or how they discover what us. Percentage? It's like 40% female on Snapchat. And on, on Instagram? It's probably 5 to 10%. Th those aren't the dynamics of the platforms. That's just the dynamics of kind of who's discovered and And the type of content, content that we put on different platforms. Yeah. Sure. And so, and I think that what's great is that 
it's not like you're serving the same consumer on five different platforms. In the same way, you ask me, where do you consume your news? If I say the New York Times, I don't follow them on Instagram or on Snapchat, you know, but I will go. So it's like we all use the different platforms for different types of stuff. So it's different on all of those. But ultimately, I think that, you know, there's an element of sports that is about the granularity. This person got traded, this person scored X points, this person got drafted. And I think that that part of the sports world is insanely saturated. Nobody's ever said, gee, I wish I could have more people talking about this trade. And so I think when you come to us, you see an element of sport that is fun, that is reflective of of kind of life via the caption. It features amazing like young people who you saw. Oh, I saw that person. I saw Trey Young on overtime way before he was at Oklahoma and then he was on, you know, Atlanta and stuff like that. So I think that aspect of it, especially ultimately, it's like the audience sees themselves. And Zion Williamson. That's yeah. where he first seeped yeah. into I mean, our we consciousness, have 10, right? 10,000 clips of Zion in, in, in 11th and 12th grade playing. Right. And the other thing that I would add to that, too, I think that you can expect a, a different language, a different tone. I mean, if you if you read our captions on any of these platforms, I think that, you know, the average 50 year old might not even know what we're talking about. And, and that's by design. And, and we, Why are you we... crushing 50 year olds? <laughs> wow. I know he's in the city. I don't know about you. <laughs> I always say to people, people are like, oh, I love you. Like, don't worry. I don't have anything to do with the captions. I, I can get the money. I can work with Zach. I, I hire the people, but like, that's not my language. How old are you, that. Zach? I'm 26. 26. Yeah, actually exactly half Dan's age. That's wonderful. Yeah. I'm sure that feels good, right? I'm 13. I yeah, mean, <laughs> I, yeah, that's right. 72. Yeah. Um, so it speaks to the to the, the kid right now, right? Absolutely. And that was the goal because there's already ESPN, there's already Fox, there's already Disney, there's already a whole bunch of people. But you guys found some white space. Yeah, I think those those all those platforms do an incredible job of serving their audience that has grown up with those platforms. Uh, it's just that this audience, this, this generation, this whatever you want to call it, Gen Z, who will be 40% of all consumers in 2020, they're just different. They didn't grow up that way. Uh, they didn't, uh, just like my kids might play games on the phone. I went to the arcade and played Space Invaders <laughs> or Pac-Man. Like, it's just different. And to assume that both audiences want the exact same thing is is probably not the accurate assumption and a lot of those the traditional players they have a great business but they're also locked into serving that audience and so it's really hard to serve both and therefore it creates space for us and i i ran the the digital talent division at wme so we represented all the biggest youtubers and instagram people and so you had this real visibility into the way that content was changing on digital platforms for young people. And we kept looking at it and being like, we're sports. I see beauty here. I see makeup. I see unboxing. I see every type of digital thing. But mm -hmm. sports was still just highlights. There wasn't a lot else around there. Now, you guys met at WME, right? We met before WME. Before WME. Yeah. Um, where'd you meet? We met through someone that I knew and someone that Zach knew. I knew from college-ish because he's much younger. Zach knew from high school. This is like a blind date. What are we, what are we saying over Facebook. I said, I'm looking for a young person who knows something about sports. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. What's crazy, though, is Get after... You're kidding me. No. No, that's what you're happened. You're making my chain. No. You, you're looking for a I... young person who knows about sports to help me get into this space uh, I knew what I knew way. and what I could do, but really? I also knew like I wasn't the expert on 25-year-olds. 
And so I was like, there's somebody out there who knows all of this stuff. So who's this intermediary? Who's this mutual friend? Josh. Or Josh. We yeah, owe it all so to Josh. he went to Princeton where I went, although he was younger, but that's how he found me. And then he and I, I, we both went to Stuyvesant. We were on the chess team together. Uh, and I had a different startup when I was in college. And I would go to Josh for advice. So that's that's sort of how I got to know him because he also had a startup. He was a little older. And then, yeah, he, he was like, oh, I want to connect you with this guy, Dan. Uh, and then we met. And then we, we later found out, actually, my mom made this discovery that Dan's dad uh, was my college advisor at Penn, which is just crazy. That's just unbelievable. <laughs> it's clear that if you want to build a billion-dollar unicorn, you should recruit from the chess team. That's, <laughs> that's Stuyvesant. Yeah. Nowhere else. Yeah. Wow. If they have to take a test to get into the school, then yeah. So you guys meet. You meet yeah. over fa over Facebook. That's how we were introduced, yes. And okay. then we moved to email another. We, we sent, we was, sent probably 100 emails the first night we, we no started kidding. interacting. What, yeah. was the comp what were the first words, and then where did it go from there? I think I think it was both about a lot of our vision for where we things that we wanted to do and where we saw the market going and all the holes. Like I think we probably discussed a hundred different topics of different holes on email. Yes. Yeah. Why did you just pick up the phone? Is that is, is that? A I think problem? you were in Costa Rica. I hate Maybe. talking on the phone I anyway. I don't like talking on the phone. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Me neither. But okay. The only person I talked on the phone really actually is you, ironically. Yeah. And your mom. Fair. So so you're cranking <laughs> away, and now you guys are like. Well, it's. I think what it is is that you know that there's a problem slash opportunity and you know what's what's missing but then you don't know exactly what to put in there so if you know that this audience has fallen off from live sports you know even the super bowl is like the 10th year in a row of declining ratings same, same for award show and and the mainstays of television you think okay, well, what can we give them? And that, that was the part that we didn't know. And all we knew is you could try a lot of different things. And then sports is more complicated because unlike a food vertical or fashion, there's rights issues. Like you can't just go in and start showing NBA clips or NFL clips because you don't have the rights for those. And, and I think what was interesting about that email thread and I think is interesting about our relationship is I think even in that email thread, now that I'm thinking about it, we, we fill different holes in our knowledge. Like as Dan said, you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, Dan had built multiple companies before, knew a lot of things that I didn't know, obviously. And there were things that I knew being younger and having a different cohort and having run a sports website before. So there, there, there were things where it was very clear that we were sort of the right match. And to be honest, we, we took a big leap of faith. Uh, and I was actually talking to a friend about this yesterday. Like, we got lucky that we actually like each other. And when we travel and stuff, we have fun. But that, that was not guaranteed. You didn't even know the guy. Right. Yeah. That's, no. That blows me away. Had you tried? Had you kissed some other toads, so to speak? Had you, uh, you know, uh, in the search, in the search for this man? No. You hadn't, you hadn't reached out to anybody. We else? love it first. No. This was the first one. <laughs> yeah. The analogies are just killing us right here. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That that blows me away. Yeah. Okay. So you guys meet. Then then what happens? Well, so then, like I said, I think we we tried a bunch of different stuff by the way, before we kind of succeeded in the cur current iteration. In the very, very beginning, I think I was really interested about at a lot of the sports communities on Reddit. You know, they have some very deep NBA and other things like that. And so I thought, wow, people love to get together and talk about sports. Maybe there's a better platform for this. And the reality is, is maybe there is, but people are still fine going on Reddit, texting their friends, doing the things that they're, they wanted to do. So there was like a number of different things 
where we would kind of try and then we would either not see a lot of uptake in the experimentation or I think we would know naturally like there wasn't uh, a lot there. And then in the summer of 2016, uh, we had a bunch of interns from Stuyvesant and we said like, what's happening in New York in the summer? There's all this parks and shoot basketball. And we said to them, go film some players and give them some videos. Because I, I think one thing we knew is, is that of all the different verticals, there's no selfies in sports. Everything else you can kind of hold your phone up and film yourself. But when you're running down a field or a court or a pitch, you obviously can't do that. So you gave them videos of themselves? Yeah. And then what, what were they supposed to do with them? I don't, I don't know. They end up sharing them. and I Well, think, we didn't know. Yeah. Is it more accurate? Yeah. yeah. They end up sharing them. And I remember even like uh, somebody went to Zach's high school, shared one that we made of him. And it got a tremendous number of views. And I think we started to understand like, wow, there's this kind of generation of young athletes who've grown up digital native, grown up with smartphones, and they have a lot of followers and a lot of clout. And in a way, they're completely invisible to mainstream media. And mainstream media either doesn't see them because they tend to be young and urban, and that's not the demographic of people who run major media companies. You think? And <laughs> I've heard. What? And number two is I think that the traditional view of younger athletes is like, Four-star recruit, five-star recruit. Oh, I went to Northwestern. Oh, I only care about them if they're going to commit to Northwestern, you know? And if, if, that's not, if that's not what's interesting, that's not what's interesting. So the format of how you thought about younger athletes was very codified. Mm -hmm. And that's not how young people aren't thinking like he's a four-star or five-star. Young people aren't thinking like, wow, I, is he going to go to Georgetown or Duke? They're just thinking like, this guy's amazing and I love watching his stuff. And I think... Once we understood that insight and once the more metadata we removed from a post, the more we stopped talking about how he was 6'4 and played point guard and went to a school. And as soon as I would say, oh, or the person posting would say he went to X school, the audience would say, well, I never heard of that school, so I don't care anymore. As soon as you stripped all of that away and made it about something else, about them, about the excitement of it the more the audience grew. And so it was kind of an iterative process of understanding where that hole is in the market and how you could take something that was traditionally viewed in one way and had limited appeal and really magnify the but appeal. But you're, you're, you're dropping knowledge here that you, yeah. that you gained over time. Yeah. As this revealed itself to you, it must have been you know, little aha moments here and there, right? It, yeah. It, that, that sort of aggregated over time. And I would guess with, with some assists from the young man here, because the way that you're talking about young people, um, that probably wasn't intuitive, the way that they saw, you know, uh, saw themselves, right? Yeah. Saw themselves I, I don't think it was intuitive to me how I am as a person. But again, like, I represented a lot of the right. biggest YouTubers, so I saw that I had teenage kids. I'll never forget at some point, right before the iPhone came out, there used to be this other camera, the flip camera. And I remember that the guy who started it came to talk to us when I was working for Richard Branson at Virgin. And he said, you know, the most amazing thing in our research, this was I think 2007, is he said, you give our camera before the iPhone to somebody under 25 and they pointed at themselves and you give it to somebody over 25 and they pointed out. And I, I had picked it up and I had started filming the room and other people were filming themselves. And so wow. you could understand 
my mom's a sociologist, you could understand if you step back, if you open your mind to human nature, like, and you're willing to go beyond yourself, there's just all of these different types of patterns. And of course, he was absolutely right. And the phone came out and selfies and everything else like that. So you just kind of look for those real differences. And if you can understand them at the elemental level, I think you can scale them. Yeah. And how Dan talked about how we had to experiment to sort of land on this next generation of athletes. Once we did, there was still more experimentation. I mean, we initially thought that we were going to build a platform for every single athlete and we were going to give them this technology that allowed them to, to film their own highlights, to have parents mm -hmm. do it, whatever. And we realized through experimentation that people didn't care about the seventh player on Stuyvesant. They didn't even care about the, the best player on Stuyvesant. What they wanted to see were these next superstars. And so that's an example of us not necessarily knowing going in, but through our experimentation, finding that out. And I think that that's a core, that's core to our DNA as a company now. Like mm -hmm. we talk all the time about how many experiments we can run and how many different things we should try. Um, and I think that's as critical to our success as anything. And you're positioned to react to those experiments like right away. Yeah, I mean, I, make I, changes I, every we day. failed at so many things like along what? the way. Oh, we, we used to have 100 feeds for 100 high schools, and we thought we were going to build the sports center for each high school, and all the kids were going to watch it. And the kids would be like, well, I didn't really do anything that interesting, so it's not worth watching. Wow. Um, our Instagram account, which is like kind of the tip of the sword for us, we started that because we thought it was a good way to get people to download an app that we no longer have. And so... That didn't work out. No. So how, we how realized does... that they cared way more about being on Instagram or on a social media platform. So you you just, what you do is you keep doing things and then you kind of every week or every two weeks assess. And you're like, we used to have articles. At some point we were like, we're only gonna have videos. We're never gonna have a piece of written word or anything else like that. Right. And that was on a Friday and by Monday we had no more articles. So you just kind of cut and optimize and when you see that something performs, you double down on it. And that. I think your question about being reactive is super important and on point. I mean, so obviously there's a lot of talk about esports, um, and we, we didn't want to react too quickly and do something that didn't feel core to overtime. Um, but as Fortnite, Fortnite became huge, we actually launched our own Fortnite team. So that's an example of reacting quickly and differently and experimenting. And I, I don't think that you'd see a legacy media company do that. And if they did, it would take them a year to make it happen. It took us a week. Yeah, a lot of meetings, you know, yeah. a yeah. lot of layers. And I've worked for three or four large. I worked for Virgin. I worked for Bertelsmann. I worked for Endeavor. I worked, so I've also sat in those meetings on yes, the other side. Yes, probably ran a couple of them too. Okay. You must feel incredibly liberated from all that. Uh, I do. In this world, right? <laughs> I do. I would imagine. There's so much. There. I don't have to worry about if the SVP is going to piss off the EVP right. <laughs> and he's going to send the VP after him. Well, you don't want to piss off too many people. Yeah. <laughs> How does the content get there? How does it get to overtime? Because so, it's coming from all over the place. Yeah. So I, I would think about our content sort of in three buckets. Um, I would say the first and probably the smallest is true crowdsourced. Like overtime is sort of this badge of approval and you want to be on overtime. So Dan and I actually personally get DM'd on Instagram all the time like, oh, can you put me on overtime? You know, most of the clips are not worthy. There's and a clip on Twitter right now, the last clip we posted, a kid DM'd to me. What did he say? He said, will you post this? And it's two kids like play fighting in the bathroom and they knock the door off the stall. Oh, and, I saw that one. Yeah. So, you like that one. Yeah. So I sent it to Tom, who runs it. I was like, I don't know. He's like, this is kind of funny. That, that's amazing. You talked about the generation doing selfies. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, Zach, what's up with that? 
why the obsession with oneself? Because Dan would point the camera away. You would point it to yourself. What, what, why, what, what? Um, How did we get here? How did that happen? I think a lot of it has to do with, with social proof, for sure. I mean, Dan and I were at, at the Duke game the other night, and I was lucky to be at the Super Bowl. And, you know, I don't even, I don't think of myself as a social proof type of person, but I, I do I do ultimately want to post something and want to let people know that I'm there. I was there. Um, and when you put yourself in that medium, that's sort of the ultimate proof of that, and you can kind of put your own stamp on that. Um, but I think it's also a product of technology. Like, it, it's a lot more cumbersome to point, you know, a, a, an old style camera at yourself, it's a lot easier to, to point your phone at yourself. So I think I think it's also sort of the circumstances around us. I, I, I would say I'd say th three things in addition to that. One is that uh, if you grew up without, let's say, a cell phone, like the picture of you you take as a selfie doesn't look like you in the real world. And you experience that cognitive dissonance as an older person, but as a younger person, you've mostly seen yourself through the lens of the camera and you don't experience that cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. I would say that number two, there's a sense that like, there's a sense of, of creativity. Like I can take any pose, my friends and I can do anything that we want in the same way that fashion also lets you express some level of, creativity. And I think the third is if you go on vacation, like, you know, let's say you go to the Caribbean, you're like, do you want to see my pictures? And I look at 20 pictures with nobody in them. Right. And I'm like, that's a nice sunset. That's another nice sunset. Right. And I see a picture of you or your friends or whatever, like people like to look at the pictures with, with those. And, and so my, my dad, who's in his eighties, he travels. He's like, Oh, we went to Africa, your mother and I, and it's like 300 pictures with nary a human in them. And I'm just, I'm just like, <laughs> we must have the same parents. Yeah. They do the same thing. Like, yeah. were you there or not? Yeah, exactly. Did someone else take these? Who, yeah. You stole someone's pictures. Yeah. You got to teach them how to take a selfie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Teach them how to turn the camera on. That's a whole other thing. Um, growing up, what, what did you want to do? Zach? What was your what was your vision? Um, I wanted to be in the MBA, um, and then prob and yeah, probably in the, around the sixth grade, I realized I wasn't going happened. to be in the MBA. And then I think, uh, I mean, I know that probably for the next I don't know six years or so, I, I didn't even really envision sports being part of my future in a meaningful way. In fact, I thought I was going to be a math professor at some point. Um, and then when I got to Penn, I had a a sports radio show by chance. I met someone playing tennis. They were like, oh, you should have a show. I was like, okay. And then um, I started to sort of realize like, okay, maybe there's another pathway in to working in sports. And then that's when I started uh, my website in college. And then things sort of just took out from there. But I mean, one thing that I, I am really proud of, like, I think if myself in, in 10th grade or 9th grade or whatever looked at where I am now, um, I think they'd be like super happy. And I, and I try to remind myself when things get stressful, I'm like, Zach, think about that 15-year-old kid that you were. Like, you'd look up to yourself now. And that's, and I hope that doesn't come off as cocky, but it, it is, it's really important to me. Satisfying. Yeah. Chess. I have a long way to go, but. Clearly, clearly. <laughs> but chess was a big thing for you. Yes. Where, how did that, how does that apply to what you do today? Um, it's if, funny. If because I, I think that chess metaphors are perhaps overused in the sports world. Like, oh, this, this uh, quarterback matchup is like a chess duel. Um, I, I think that they're somewhat apropos. Um, for me, I actually think one of the biggest things and why I was gravitated towards chess was the competitive nature of it. I mean, 
I started playing chess when I was three years old, started playing in tournaments when, I don't know, maybe I was six. Um, and when you're six years old, you play soccer, you play ASO, like everyone is just sort of like doing their own thing on the soccer field. It's not, there's, you know, not tournaments, like it's very unregulated. But chess, the moment you enter it, like you're entering a tournament, you have an ELO rating, like it's very structured and it's like, oh, I beat you. Like my mental strength is better. There, there was something very rewarding about winning a chess game and winning a tournament. Um, and I think that that sort of competitiveness um, is obviously relevant when running a company. I mean, Dan says this all the time, but like we want to destroy our competitors. We, we want to win. Um, so I think that that part is, is very relevant. Um, I think there's elements to the idea of being strategic and seeing a few steps ahead. I, I think that's probably a little bit overblown, uh, but I think parts of it are true. And actually, the, I would say the number one thing is that at a pretty young age, probably when I was 13 or 14, I started teaching chess. Really? And I think that really helped my communication skills and has helped me become a better manager and, and hire and recruiter. To little kids? Yeah, I mean, some, sometimes to people older than me, actually. Even when I was 13, I had clients that were older than me. How far did you take chess? Did you um, championships around the country? Or? Yeah, yeah. Um, in high school, we were national champions. Uh, at Penn, we were three-time Ivy League champions. So it was, a, it was a really big part of my life, and I sure. still try to play when I can. Wow. Now, your path to this point took a long and winding road. Yeah. Right? Serial entrepreneur, you would describe yourself. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> To his credit, I've never heard him say those words about himself. Everyone else says it about him. Correct. I say um, jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> Coming out of Princeton, what was the plan? Uh, well, before Princeton, the plan was definitely to be a rock and roll star. <laughs> I was going to be the biggest Jewish rock and roll star in the world. How'd that work out? Uh, it, it didn't. It worked out poorly. Uh, in high school, I had long hair. I played the guitar. Um, and I was like, I'm going to be a rock and roll star. And my parents, my grandparents were like, nice Jewish boys go to college. You don't get to be rock and roll stars. After college, you can, of course. Then it, Get your degree. Then it sucks the rock and roll out of you. But uh, <laughs> so I was still, I wanted, I, when I was in college, I studied at Berkeley College of Music over the summers. I was very, I played the piano. I played the guitar. Uh, I thought I was going to be a musician. I mean, I was a musician, but I thought that was going to be my life. In the style of what? Of who? Uh, I play jazz piano and uh, I also play like rock and roll guitar. Like who? who who's like, your guy? Like, can I play as well as them? No. But like in terms of guitar, I was a huge Stevie Ray Vaughan fan. I'm also a huge Sealy Dan fan and all the jazz guitarists, Larry Carlton, all the people who played on those records. Wow. Uh, then piano, I was a huge McCoy Tyner and Bill Evans fan. So you're able to blow off steam doing that these yeah. days, right? Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. And then when I was in, uh, I worked in the music business initially. And I remember when the Village Voice used to be a thing and like the classifieds <laughs> on the back of the Village Voice were wow. like the Craigslist of its day. And I remember looking at the back of the Village Voice and I saw that there was this person offering piano lessons and I had run the radio station, the jazz programming for four years. And she was this great pianist and one of my favorite ones. I was like, oh my gosh, I could take a lesson with her. And it was just a phone number because there was no email. So I called her up and I went to her studio and she had these two pianos that faced each other. And I took some lessons with her and it was $40. And I remember thinking wow, even if she gave a thousand lessons a year, like that's tough. And I will never be better than she is. And 
I was like, I guess I got to find something else to do. A math major. You put it to good use right there. Yeah, huh? I was a history major, but uh, my dad was a math professor. Oh, that's what it was. I was an American history major. But the math uh, So then I thought I might be a college professor because that's what my parents did. But that, that, so I got a master's degree while I was working. But I didn't really know what I was wanting to do. It took me 10 years to figure it out. And what did you do in those 10 years? Uh, I was a public school teacher. Uh, I became one of the founders of the Teach for America program, and I was the president of that in the mid-90s. I worked on some of the very early charter schools in New York mm -hmm. after that. Um, and that really comprised like the first 10 years. I would, I would apply to school for various graduate schools, and then I would never go. I applied and got in for creative writing. I never went. I applied and got in for business school. I never went. So I was always like thinking that school was the answer. I ended up getting a master's degree in 19th century Mexican history while I was working. That has had a limited impact on my career. <laughs> Gonna say. Uh, um, but uh, eventually, just kind of like, I, 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 it, was a, it was a lot like, over time, like you just learned a lot about what didn't work. <laughs> and so as you shrunk the pie, the you tried to find new things to add to the pie to see what you would like to do. It's all about process of elimination. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, weirdly, sure working, the whole thing... working on the nonprofit side, like when, uh, when Teach for America was started and then when I joined shortly thereafter, uh, it was really, in a weird way, it was very entrepreneurial. Like we created this thing that's now, I think, the second largest hire of college graduates in the United States. Um, and except for the fact that it, didn't make revenues. Everything else was very entrepreneurial. I ended up creating the first recruitment and selection process and the interview process. And this idea that like you could have an idea and you could make something happen in short order. And then it was there. And all of a sudden, 3,500 people were answering the essay questions that you wrote and doing this whole process that you do. I think for me, it was the beginning of this connection that there was this link between what I liked about playing music, this creative improvisational nature, mm -hmm. and what you could do in business as opposed to saying if I had graduated and worked at a consulting firm I remember I interviewed and the guy said well first you know you're you know an analyst then you're an associate and then you're this and then you're that and I was like well, what if you want to start right at the top and he goes it doesn't work that way I was like well how do you move ahead faster and he's like you don't you log two years of each of these wow. and I was like it. I'm not interested in that. So it was clear that I had cut that option off you, too. So. You would have died first. <laughs> I would have died. It sounds that way. Yeah. Wow. So at some point you decide you're, you're developing video games. Yeah. How'd you get to that point? Uh, in in the mid 2000s, I was working for Richard Branson and for Virgin, and at that point, Virgin had an airline. It had a lot of things, but what made Virgin so cool in the beginning was that Richard had a record company, and so a rock and roll record company by a cool British dude going into the airline business. That's amazing. By you know, 2006, 2007, he hadn't known the record label for 12 years. And so there was a whole generation of kids who only knew the airlines. They didn't know that aspect of the cool thing. So the first thing I did was I, I worked on reinvigorating the music heritage by launching music festivals. So I had a music festival in the DC area and two in Canada. And, and we used that kind of rock and roll core and the more that I did that, the more I kept reading, like, the video game business is bigger than the film business. It's bigger than the music business. At that time, my kids were really young, and they had the Nintendo DS. And I started doing more and more, and I thought, oh, my gosh, video games are the new rock and roll. Like, if you want to reinvigorate Virgin and make it cool, music has been done. Like, it's owned, but, like... 
these things are coming and there were and 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 I ended up through a friend of a friend meeting somebody this young guy who was getting started in that and he showed me kind of his website and I, I couldn't understand at all what was going on I didn't even know what you were supposed to do on it and I was like this dude knows some shit and video games are going to be big I got to get out of here and do that and so I teamed up with him and there were like seven of us and we were right above a combination uh, Taco Bell Dunkin Donuts. So whichever <laughs> way you moved in the office, you could smell either towards, <laughs> where, where you know, was this? burritos or uh, donuts. Uh, donuts. Where was this? It was like on 30, West 37th Street or something in else Manhattan. like that. Yeah. Before this interview, that was the last time I came above actually 14th Street. <laughs> and uh, and so I just knew there was something there. And it was before there were virtual goods and all of those other things like that. And yeah. so I just took a giant leap. Is it wrong to be above 14th Street? I'm just asking. Um, Is there something it, bad about that? It was only wrong. I lived Does in Brooklyn. Does it make me a bad very, guy? No, <laughs> you could I, say I, I never go okay. below 14th Street. I, but I would be lying. Yeah. So. I go down there to try to get some cool points. <laughs> exactly. Every now and then. So, but so me, you sell this video game empire. Yeah. For pretty after penny. After five years. After five for years. For $200 million. And you did okay yeah. with that. I did okay. Why not just quit? Why not shackles. just retire? I'm good. Just call it a night. What? Well, first... Two answers. One is there are like, many who would. I guess, but like, it's not. I mean, what would I do? Asking you, I don't know. No, I need to make things. Do like, stuff. Yeah. First of all, you need to do stuff. Second of all, you never want to be that guy who twenty years ago sold that thing that nobody ever heard of and nobody um, cares. Yeah, and nobody cares. And number three is, I just think it's. I don't know. I mean, there's so many. There are so many. The, like the thing that's amazing about technology is that it's just always changing, right? Like I remember I went to a presentation in 2010 when the iPhone had been out for two years and the first slide said, there are 10 times more cameras on phones in the world than there are cameras that are owned by people. And at that time, like there, there was no Instagram, there was nothing and you just think, wow, like the world is gonna change. And then all of a sudden there's no keyboard and I look, I made a game that was very driven by touch interface and I just think like, in that aspect of the world, there's so many changes that I find it amazingly interesting wow. to try to do stuff. So where does overtime go next? What's the next step? What do you guys see? So Mr. Many Pulse on steps. the finger of young people. Yeah, there, there's a there's a lot of next steps. Um, I, I think I think one is is thinking more globally. Um, you know, I think we've done a really good job so far here in the United States of making kids really passionate about our brand. Um, but as as Dan alluded to earlier, like th there's nothing. Of, I actually never finished the question of how we get the rest of our content. So there's that crowdsource oh, part. Um, and the second part, and a large majority of our content comes from a technology that we built. We built a custom camera app that allows people to um, capture highlights in real time. Um, and the biggest heart part, the biggest thing that we built is this thing called flashback. So you hold up in your phone, you don't know when the highlight's gonna happen. What it does is it streams locally through memory. When a highlight happens, you press a button, it goes back 15 seconds and it captures it and sends it to our server. We have a whole system of, of viewing the clips and sorting them uh, and figuring out what should be pushed out to what platform, et cetera. Um, User-generated so, stuff, right? No, 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 no. So, so, so like for instance, Zion, right? When he was in high school, right. I don't wanna rely on user-generated stuff. I'll pay a kid. 40 bucks to go and we'll have everything we'll have before everyone and we'll we have own like it. thousands of people in our network that we can activate exactly and our technology while it's in the app store if you don't work for us you can't use it 
You yeah, it's proprietary to us. Okay. So, so to that point, so it relates to international, there's no reason why, A, we can't leverage that technology there, B, why we can't create content that's going to be relevant to those people in those local places, and C, there's no, there's no rights issues. Like, as, as, as Dan said, it's not ESPN where you have to acquire NBA rights for the United States. So um, I think international is huge for, for sports in general, but particularly because of those reasons for us. How far beyond the shores of the U.S. have you gone so far? Uh, we've, Europe. Yeah, Europe. Okay. Uh, we just uh, have done some soft launch in India. Yep. I mean, look, look at EPL. Look at the number of players from Africa and from other places. And look at the NBA. I mean, there's not an NBA team that doesn't have somebody, you know, at this point from Slovenia, from Serbia, from France, from all these other places, from Cameroon. And uh, I think that those leagues in particular have done such a good job of creating global sports that uh, the hopes and dreams of all these kids are very real, that they can play in these leagues and that they can aspire and they can watch these. And for us, like our whole business is built around the kind of who's next of dynamic young people. And now that's global Uh, and figuring out how to do that and then how to do what we did here, which was breadth of coverage, speed of coverage, like when when because we were mobile powered, when Zion blocked some kid, we had it on the internet in five seconds. Everyone else had it like two hours later. And on the internet, like ten minutes could be half a million views. That's and right. so uh doing that at a global scale and realizing that people are watching other people in a way that it doesn't matter whether you know, you live in Cleveland, so you only care about a Cleveland team. All of that kind of goes away. And so I think that's a, that's a huge initiative for us to build basically a global audience. Did I ask you how you monetize this? Because I, yeah. st- I started to hint at it in the beginning, but yeah. how, how so, do you? So half a million people are watching in a few seconds, so what? You know? Yeah, so three ways. You don't really monetize short form. Short form is how you build community and how you get people Yes, yeah, so this gets to the third type of content that we do. So we we work with a lot of brands around a lot of our series and we integrate them in and they yeah so the, the third the third part of our content is longer form series yeah. so not an hour long series but 15 20 minute series that are on youtube snapchat series. that kids love like they'll watch 10 20 minutes of those series they're not just walking watching yeah. three seconds sure so we work with brands we have a, an amazingly fast-growing commerce business where kids all around the world are buying overtime t-shirts sweatshirts basketball sleeves all this stuff uh, and the third is we're starting this year to do more live activations. So that's on the roadmap for us. Eventually, we want to have our own league. League? Yeah. Like, which, what, what sport? Uh, basketball, soccer. We want to compete with all the big guys. Really? Well, here's the yeah. thing. I mean, we, we have the built-in audience. We have the wow. built-in storytelling capabilities. Sure, sure. Change the whole game. Yep. And also, like, very few of these games are being built from the ground up for digital consumption yeah, that's right. the way they're filmed i mean imagine you know a, a basketball game where there are no announcers but every player is live mic wow. and you hear them the same way like if you play pickup wow. sports if you play street football you go basketball to the gym you hear all that when you're playing people sure yelling at each other and we never like hear that, that at all yeah wow well, Fox kind of gets there with the second base cam- uh, yeah, microphone or whatever. I think there's, I think but there, it's just touching the, the iceberg. Yeah, there's elements yeah. of it. But what you're doing is you're retrofitting something that was built in a different, right. you know, for a different thing. Whereas here you're making rules from the ground up around digital consumption. Wow. So the world 
domination. World domination for sure. Own sports leagues. Peaceful world domination. Own sports leagues. <laughs> yeah. No uh, no takeover. Yeah. And like probably maybe the fourth or fifth biggest apparel brand in the world. In the world. Yeah. Okay. Behind who? Be- uh, Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, any of those folks. Overtime. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Love it, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. having us. Really cool. Awesome. Appreciate it. Hello. Ha, 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 ha.